I'm Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. First of all, thank you so much for joining Death by Design podcast. I'm really interested in talking to you about life and death and the really huge role that you've played in this industry, especially in San Francisco. Well, uh, first of all, I'm really glad to be with you and nice to have an honest conversation about one of the most important issues of our life, how we die and uh, how what that can teach us about how to live. Well, you know, I'm always interested in what what attracted you or what what happened for you to be, I guess, open to even working with death and dying or what, what made you want to even do this? Well, you know, I think we all have crooked paths that lead us to uh, where we are now. Mine, mine certainly meandered a bit, but I was introduced to death really early. My mother died when I was 16 and my father just a few years later. So death and I became, you know, early companions. Um, Buddhist practice with its focus on impermanence or constant change was it been a great teacher in my life since my early 20s. So that's another big influence. I worked in refugee camps where I saw a lot of horrible dying in southern Mexico. Just dying often that I couldn't do very much about. Um, and, and then the AIDS epidemic came along in San Francisco and San Francisco was kind of ground zero for the AIDS epidemic. And I had lots of friends and uh, who I were dying and so we took care of them and out of that came my work in creating the zen hospice project yeah so tell me the zen hospice project is did it evolve because of the huge epidemic of aids back in the 80s in san francisco well curiously the zen hospice project came about in in the midst of the aids crisis but we um when we started it, what we did was we walked around We walked around and talked to all the providers in San Francisco and found out where the biggest holes were, who were the people that weren't being cared for. And at that point, there were a lot of services for people with AIDS, <clears throat> but almost nothing for people living on the streets. And so we decided to look after people who were living on the streets or in small SRO hotels, you know. And they might have had AIDS, but they also had cancer and other uh, life-threatening illnesses, you know. So I changed a lot of diapers on park benches behind City Hall. Oh, wow. Like really caring for people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was as close as you can get, you know. It was intimate work, you know. That's the thing about being with dying. You can't do it from a distance. It's intimate. It's uh, personal. Uh, it's um, It's not a matter of just following a series of protocols. So to be with these particular group of people... We didn't trust very much. You know, they they had given up, really, they had no trust, really, in, in society very much anymore. And so if I was going to be of any use to them, I had to be real, you know. So that meant I had to look at my own suffering. I had to look at my own grief, my own fear. So that when they spoke with me about it, I could build an empathetic bridge from my experience to theirs. And that's how I became trustworthy to them, yeah. I mean, you know, if you don't know what happens to you when you're afraid, and someone else says they're scared, and you say, I understand, they will know that you're just guessing, and they will sniff out your sentimentality and your insincerity, and, and you won't be a reliable refuge for them. 
So in order to do this work of caring for somebody else, I had to do my homework. I had to really look at my own life. Well, did you ever find during this, throughout this intimate experience with some of these homeless individuals facing their own end of life, did how did you take care of yourself? Or was that even of interest? You know, right now, I I feel that a lot of individuals who are taking care of the dying are doing it in, in settings, in corporate settings, and uh, and I'm finding that they're not able to take care of themselves. And so I was just wondering, how did you take care of yourself? Well, first of all, I think it's absolutely essential, you know, that we take care of ourselves, you know. Otherwise, we get caught in some kind of martyrdom or we tend to do it mechanically, you know. We've made of care of the dying something technological and professional. And so in the course of doing that often, what's happened is we've forgotten about our innate generosity and compassion and wisdom. And we have to reconnect with that in order to be a real true service. So for me, um, the way I took care of myself, well, lots of ways. I mean, one of the things I did was come back to my meditation cushion. That was essential to me to develop the stability that I needed to continue to face unbelievable suffering. You know, sometimes I worked, we had 30 or 40 people die in a week. And so, you know, the grief and and the secondary suffering was enormous. So the other thing I did was I went to a body worker who I know and trust. He didn't do anything woo-woo or too California on me. I'd walk <laughs> in the room, and he'd say, where today, Frank? And I'd point to my shoulder, and he'd say, okay. And I'd lay down on the table, and he'd put his hand on my shoulder, and I would just cry for an hour. Oh, wow. And that was a way to metabolize, if you will, to integrate the grief that I had experienced. And there was something about the physical touch and also the relational quality that really mattered. Hmm. And then the then I did a third thing. I went um, to the hospital, San Francisco Hospital, where I knew the nurses on the maternity ward. And I would go to the maternity ward and I would hold babies that had been born to um, addicted mothers. And these babies would shake and I would sit in a rocking chair and I'd rock them back and forth and I could soothe them. And there was something about being able to soothe their suffering, which was really helpful to me in meeting other suffering that I couldn't necessarily address. You know, I couldn't, not that I couldn't address it, I couldn't, I couldn't necessarily soothe it. Yeah. Mm. So those were three things that I did that sort of took care of myself. And then, you know, I swam in the bay and I played with my kids and <laughs> I did life-affirming things. Right, right. So the Zen Hospice Project, which is, I, I was able to visit about a year ago in San Francisco. And what I loved about the Zen hospice program is it wasn't attached to any t- type of reimbursement. And so you didn't live by the laws of reimbursement. Can you tell me a little bit about how and why you chose not to get involved with that hospice reimbursement benefit? To begin with, I should say I'm not involved with Zen hospice anymore. I retired from that to start another organization called the Metta Institute. In those days, in order to qualify for hospice services, you had to have a home, you had to have a primary caregiver, and you had to have access to, um, you know, entitlements, um, Medicare, Medi-Cal, those things. And the people we were working, we didn't have any of those things. They lived on the streets, on park benches. So we said, okay, well, we'll be the home, we'll be the family, and we'll get them qualified for their SSI and Medicare and the other things that they need. And... We'll work on it that way. So it was kind of a social model. So what we did was collaborate with existing providers, other hospices in town, that, um, and really worked with this clientele of people who were completely abandoned. 
um, I wasn't so much interested in uh, reimbursement. I was interested in taking care of people. Yeah, and so we just had learned how to work the system in the best way possible, so that you know that our collaborators could in fact be reimbursed. But we took care of people for nothing, <laughs> for free. Mm. Yeah, Zen Hospice later evolved into a model where it did in fact get reimbursement, but the, unfortunately, the residence, the hospice residence that we started, is now closed. I know. I heard that. Yeah, in part because they couldn't uh, sustain sustain it financially. Yeah. Are you aware of how Zen Hospice or the Zen Hospice project is changing and, and what is it evolving into? Because there was an article about, I don't know, six, eight months ago that it Zen Hospice was closing. Yeah, well, the, it has a um, Zen Hospice had a few programs. One of them was a hospice residence, fondly called the Guest House, and that's closed. And in fact, the building's been sold. And so the hospice is now sort of, I think, um, reimagining itself. It has a volunteer program at Laguna Honda Hospital, which is a large county hospital. So there's different programs. And that's that yeah. was probably a misconception that it was just a residential hospice program, but there are other there are other branches of this project too. Yeah, it has it has other volunteer programs and it has some educational programs that it's doing, which are very good. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Working with the dying, what have they taught you about life? <laughs> well, just about everything I know seems to come from folks who are dying. Um, you know, I mean, oh, some wow. people, you know, when they were dying, they blossomed and they found a kindness that they'd wanted their whole lives, you know, and they made reconciliations with long lost family members and they found forgiveness and beautiful kind of blossoming that happened for them. And other people turned toward the wall in withdrawal and hopelessness and depression and they never came back again, you know. And all of them were my teachers. And what I'm trying to say to you is that I saw myself in all of them, and I saw them in me. And when we, when we understand that, when we look that way, when we deal with people that way, the way care happens changes fundamentally. You know? And it's not just about me, the good guy, coming in on the white horse, trying to help people who are unfortunate. We're both in the soup together. Yeah? Mm. Here we are trying to figure it out. You know? And we see ourselves in each other, and because of that, we trust each other. Yeah. Mm. Why do you think it why do you think we mortals wait until our time is limited in order to some of us wake up and and realize that the ordinary is extraordinary and in a way. I don't know, you know, I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that. I mean, part of the one of the reasons is we think that death will come later. You know, later, like when we're old, you know, or Later is the word we use, and that gives us this comfortable buffer between ourself and death, later. But, you know, I, I mentioned to you earlier that I studied, I have studied for 40 years Buddhist practice, and the central tenet of that practice is constant change, impermanence. So later isn't, you know, change isn't later, change is now, right? Yeah, one of the famous quotes of Buddha is the problem is the, the, that you think you have time. And I love that. And it's it's even in my book. Um, and I, I just go back to that because I think Buddha is a great teacher about that time is right now. It's not later. And that quote, you know, the problem is that you think you have time is, is it resonates with me very deeply. Yeah, well, we, we speak about the present moment, you know, but what's that mean? Is it just a nanosecond in between the last moment and the next moment? And I think the present includes past and future. You know, it has a kind of eternal now to it, you know. So when we're living in present, we feel that, you know, we feel that sense of 
timelessness. And um, we, we step into another kind of time, we could call it, different than TikTok time, you know, different than linear time. Yeah. And when you're with somebody who's dying, you have that experience. You feel like days, months, calendars, you know, they go away in a sense. And you just enter into this ever fresh moment, actually, with people. And that's part of what's so alive about the time of dying. Oh, I love that explanation. That's really powerful to me. So you do have an, a book out, um, The Five Invitations, A Way to Embrace Life. And let's talk about those five invitations. And of course, being a writer too, I always love words. And so I was really interested in why invitation? What does that word mean for you in that title? Well, you know, an invitation, you know, if you invite me to your house for dinner, my job is to show up. And, um, so when I wrote these down, I thought of them as, um, kind of bottomless practices that we were inviting people into participate in. There's a lot of, uh, excuse me, there's a lot of background noise here. Um, so I'll, I'll repeat that. Um, an invitation is a request for you to show up. And so the invitations here were a request, um, for people to really show up for their whole lives. These invitations were principles that we used to take care of people as they were dying. But we found that they had a relevance for the rest of us in living a life of integrity and purpose and meaning. Yeah. Mm. So an invitation is just that. It's a kind of suggestion or request for you to show up. And here, the, the, the request is for you to show up for your whole life. Yeah? You know, that showing up thing, it's, it's really 90% of living is showing up. Um, whether you are invited to somewhere to show up, it, it's sometimes in a world that I consider on a conveyor belt of work, make money, pay bills, rinse and repeat. Um, it's it's sometimes very difficult, that simple act of showing up. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, five invitations is welcome everything, push away nothing. Now, that's a... That make a great bumper sticker, right? But how do we actually do it? <laughs> or you know? a T-shirt. Well, welcome everything. Push away nothing. Well, how do we do that? I think what what this is suggesting is that this life is more than getting a good job and finding the right partner and getting a nice house on a you know quiet street, and um, so you can go to sleep and wake up in the morning and do it all over again. I think this is a, it's an invitation to embrace all of our experience that we have as human beings. The beauty and horror of this life, you know. I mean, to know that there are babies like my granddaughter who get born into the loving arms of her father and mother who, who kiss, you know, her bright future into her life every single day. And there are babies like my friend Carolyn, whose mother left her in a dumpster when she was born. Oh, wow. You know, there, there, there's babies or young children who are making tents out of bed sheets and couch pillows tonight, right? And there are babies mm. that are crying in Syrian refugee camps. There are, there are kids being shot in our schools and other kids that are being speaking truth to power. You know, so to welcome everything is to embrace all of that, the whole of our humanity, yeah? This beautiful, ordinary thing that we call being human. So I think that's, uh, that's the invitation, really. It's not just, you know, here's a Here's a protocol you can use for taking care of people who are dying. This is what being with dying showed me about all of life. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. So tell me, tell me a little bit about the other invitations that you write about um, when it comes to 
you know, a way to embrace life. Um, that's one of them. What are, what are the other four? Well, the first one actually is don't wait. That's my favorite. Mm. Don't wait. I mean, waiting right. is full of expectation, waiting for the next moment to arrive. We miss this one, you know? Um, uh, yeah, I've worked with a lot of people, as I say, maybe a couple thousand people on the very precipice of death, right? And oftentimes they found for themselves something remarkable. They, they, they were able to meet what they thought was unbearable and unimaginable in extraordinary ways. Now, that might have happened in the final months or days or sometimes even minutes of life. And we might say too late, and I might agree. But here's the thing. If that possibility exists at the time of our dying, well, it exists now. That possibility for transformation exists now. We don't have to wait until the time of our dying to learn the lessons that it has to teach. So don't wait. Don't wait to tell the people you love that you love them. You know, Don't wait to step into your life with both feet and to live it in a creative and responsible way. It's not about just getting all the toys and you know carpe diem and all that. It's really about not getting caught in an attitude of waiting. You know? It's a full engagement with life. So that's the first one. Second one we spoke about briefly, welcome everything, push away nothing. You know, the, the great African-American writer, James Baldwin, he, he said something beautiful. He said, not everything that can be faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed that is not faced. Yeah? Oh, wow. That's powerful. Yeah. And so that's what welcome everything is. It's a willingness to meet the experience. It doesn't mean we have to like it or we have to agree with it. It just means we have to be willing to meet it. Yeah. And then when be we aware meet of it. it. Exactly. Well, more than be aware of it, actually grapple with it. Mm. And that means we have more options. You know, if we're denying something, we have our head in the sand. We have no options. So, you know, this is a kind of counterbalance to the tendency for, uh, we have to deny this experience. So on the deepest level, it's, it's about cultivating a fearless receptivity, really. And um, that can't be done as an act of will. That can only be done as an act of love. Yeah. So welcome everything, push away nothing. The third one is um, bring your whole self to the experience. Bring your whole self to the experience. I mean, we often think, particularly in, as you suggested earlier, in, in professional hospice work, that it's our expertise that will heal. It's our skills that will heal. It's our strength that will help. And those things do help. You know, I have really great tools that I've developed over these years, but I don't lead with my tools. I lead with my humanity, Yeah. Um, what I have found over the years is that the parts of myself that I most wanted to hide from, that I was most embarrassed about, were frequently those places that enabled me to build an empathetic bridge to the people I was serving. My own loneliness, my own fear serves, you know, my own grief serves, right? They serve as a meeting place with the people that I'm caring for. So I've got to bring my whole self to the experience, not just my shiny self, you know, mm. Everything. And the fourth one is find a place of rest in the middle of things. Now, we think about rest as coming later, you know, when we get our list checked off, our email box is empty, or we get all our chores done, you know. But I don't know about you, but my email box has never been empty, you know. And right. if I wait for that, I'm in trouble. So I have to learn to find a way of resting right in the middle of what I'm doing. And I think we do that by bringing our attention fully and completely to whatever it is we're engaged in, whether that's a conversation, you know, watching the sunset, reading a book, or playing with our children. And it's something, resting, 
it it kind of leads to that sort of self care again, um, taking pause and reflection. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it's uh, it's funny. Over the years, I've learned how to roll all those things into one. Self care, mm. care of others, becomes one thing. Actually, and when I'm when I'm with somebody else, if I'm exhausting myself, you know, in the in their care, something's wrong. Then I'm caught in the notion of helping, yeah. And helping creates debt. You know, when I help mm. you, it's like I'm. It's an, it's an, it's not a relationship amongst equals. Yeah, it's a one up one down relationship. And the same is true of fixing, right? When I fix people, you know, it's good to fix broken pipes and cars, but not people. People aren't broken. So when I help, I tend to cause you to feel weak. When I fix, I tend to cause you to feel broken. But when I serve, when really it's service, and that's an old word that I like to reinvest in, then really what I'm serving is the wholeness in you. And I see that in you, and I, I know that I'm being used by something bigger than myself in a way that also includes myself. So service is mutually beneficial. Helping and fixing are kind of, you know, bad habits. I love <laughs> that. You have to cultivate, yeah. That is so beautiful about service. And as human beings, there is a an innate nature in all of us to serve. But the society we live in uses words like fix or help, and it it has a whole nother meaning. So that's that's a beautiful way to to look at it, and to I love how you even put it with when you serve something, you're serving something beyond yourself. It's it's coming through you, uh, and I I think that's really important to take note of. Um, yeah. And and the last one. The fifth one is is um, cultivate don't know mind. You know, I started this in hospice project, so I felt obliged to put something Zen-like in that list. You know? <laughs> and uh, to cultivate don't know mind, I mean, what does that mean? You know, it doesn't mean to cultivate ignorance. I mean, ignorance isn't not knowing. Ignorance is that I know something, but it's the wrong thing, and then I insist on it. There's a lot of that going on in the world right now, right? Touché. To cultivate don't know mind is to cultivate a mind of curiosity, of wonder, of um, discovery. Yeah? I mean, if my mind is full of all my knowing, there's no room for anything else to enter. So when I walk into a room where someone's dying, if I walk in with all my agendas, I'm lost. And so are they, really. I have to walk in fresh, alive, willing to discover. Yeah. So to cultivate don't know mind is to, you know, kind of shake us up out of our um, our tendency to think that we have to know it all. Yeah. And and be right about it all. And everyone has to think the way we think and or you're wrong. And and to me, that's just the exact opposite of, of viewing everyone as a teacher that comes into your life. I mean I, I you know, I worked with folks who are dying for many decades. And then some years ago I had a heart attack, actually. And I found myself in the bed, being the person being cared for. And I can tell you that the view from the other side of the sheets is really different, yeah? Mm. I used to think I knew a lot about dying, and then I had a heart attack, and I realized I didn't know so much at all. I was overzealous in my knowing. And so now I'm a lot more humble about it. I don't really claim to know a whole lot about dying. I, I just, but I'm interested, I'm curious, I want to know, yeah? I mean, for me, that's the, that's the quality of a, uh, 
of open-mindedness is that quality of spaciousness infused with a certain interest, right? A deep interest in knowing. Yeah, and I, I think that's a beautiful way to go through our life. And it isn't just intellectual knowing. It's knowing with the whole mind, the whole heart, the whole body. Yeah. You know, as I'm on this, you know, Live Well, Die Well tour, and, and one of the reasons that I I invoked in such a, a tour is because I desire connection and not connection um, via social media, but true person to person, human to human connection. And I guess asking you as, you know, as a Buddhist teacher and studying Zen um, for, for decades is like, how do we be aware of what we're doing? How do we connect in a world that is always pushing for disconnection? How do we maintain that connection or uh, that's our goal? I mean, what is, what is your opinion about that? One of the things that happens, and maybe it's a misnomer, is that we're always looking to make connection as opposed to recognizing the connection that's already here. I mean, Buddhism has in it two pillars, we could say, that support the whole of the practice. One of those is wisdom and the other is compassion. You know, compassion arises out of the wisdom that while we're each unique and differentiated, we're not separate. No, no more than the wave is separate from the ocean. Yeah, it's unique. It comes up, it takes form, it has a kind of beauty to it, but then it rolls back into the ocean, right? It was formed out of the ocean. So when we understand that, when we understand that we're not separate, then compassion is a natural action that follows out of that. It's like if my left hand gets cut, my right hand reaches out for it immediately and looks after it. It doesn't ask, you know, what religion are you or do you have proper health insurance or, you know, <laughs> right. you know, maybe I shouldn't get involved. You know, it's too, too much. I don't like blood. It just cares for it. That's what my right hand does. You know? And when we understand that basis of non-separation, that we're not really separate from each other, then we care for each other in that same way. And when we don't understand that, compassion comes out of old ideas, models that have us having to be a superhero with a cape, you know, we're rushing in to save the day. You know, with this model, you understand that you do the best you can do. You, you serve in the best way you know how. And then you let go because you know that, you know, others are going to come along too. It's not all up to you. And so... I think the connection, I think it's what it's learning to turn toward and see the connection that's already there as mm. opposed to feeling like we have to make it. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's very important things to consider, especially, you know, I, I find my peace in nature. And like you said, you know, that tree is not judging itself based on the tree next to it. It's just a tree. Right. It's, it's being a tree. Right. And and it reminds me of, look, you're human, and you can't you can't judge yourself based on another human. You just have to be your human, um, and and so I find my reflection always in nature when I feel tested or criticized. I just go to nature and and try to mock it, you know, and <laughs> and, and, and internalize and and act like it. But it's 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 a lot harder to do as a human, um, for sure, because of all these external factors. Well, what are some of your recommendations for us on how to take care of ourselves 
in the world we live in. You mentioned some of the things that you did when you were working with the dying and probably still do. Anything else that you would recommend? I mean, rest was a key thing of one of your top five invitations. But what does that mean to you, rest? I think rest really comes from, again, bringing our attention fully and completely into this moment. It's not just about taking a nap. I mean, that's a good thing to do. Please, let's take more naps, you know, and let's get a good night's sleep. But also learning to rest with things as they are. We're always trying to manage the condition, change the conditions um, in order to be happy. And, you know, a friend of mine says that's like trying to arrange deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, we're missing the big <laughs> picture, you know. Right. You know, if our happiness can only come from conditions and conditions are constantly changing, well, we're in trouble. So we need to learn to rest, relax into um, with some degree of equanimity with things the way they are. And that's not indifference. That's not cutting ourselves off from the suffering of the world. It's actually a warm-hearted way of, of being in the world. You know, equanimity is a kind of love, actually. It's a flavor of love. Yeah, It says, I take you as is. You know, my daughter and I like to shop together sometimes. And we shop in consignment shops, right, and use clothing stores. And, you know, she picks a cool blouse and she goes in to try it on in the dressing room. And I look around for something that might be right for her. Cool scarf, leather jacket, something. And one day I was in the shop and it had this, and there was a shirt and it said nine ninety five as is. And I really liked that. You know, I thought, wow, that's great. You know, as is. I mean, suppose we took ourselves and each other as is, you know, instead of working for this, on this perfecting of ourselves all the time, just as is. You know, I mean, when I got married, that was my vow to my wife. I take you as is. What a gift that would be, you know. I mean, can you imagine when you're dying and everybody's got an idea about how you should die and they've got a design for your death and, you know, that you should die, you know, cross-legged, sitting like a pretzel, meditating, being really kind to everybody, and you're just feeling miserable. So suppose we just took people as is, you know, and... What would happen if we surrounded ourselves and each other with that kind of welcoming, that kind of acceptance, that kind of allowing? Then I think we could grow and develop in the ways that suit us best, that really, that we most need. Yeah. So I, I love that, as is. Yeah. Yeah, as is. And you know what? I think if we start shining ourselves up, that the majority of us have done and still are doing, we take away that vulnerable vulnerability that tends to be what makes us who we are. And and we try to hide that um, instead of being as is um, we are created. And, and so that's that's also a very beautiful statement. I, I love that as is. Um, that's a that's a, a lesson that I want to implement is is taking people as is, but most importantly, taking myself right. as is. Right. Well, it's a lot easier to do it for others if you do it for yourself. Yeah. Right. So tell me a little bit about uh, the Meta Institute. What what are you doing and and how is that uh, inspiring you to get up in the morning and, and keep um, in service of others? Well, the Meta Institute was a kind of outgrowth of the Zen Hospice Project. And what it was was an attempt to share with much broader audience of people, what dying folks had taught us in caring for them 
we put together a faculty of really great friends. Ram Das was one of them. Rachel Naomi Remen, um, Charlie Garfield, who started the Shanti Projects, really remarkable people who had already done amazing work in the world around end of life. And we put together faculty, and our job, we thought our job was a kind of legacy project to really share with other people what dying folks had helped us to understand. So the Meta Institute has a series of educational programs, trainings for both professionals and non-professionals in how to provide mindful and compassionate care to people as they die, and also how to stay awake um, and alive and um, to grow ourselves uh, in the midst of that exchange. Oh, wow. So anybody can take it, take advantage of the Meta Institute. Do you do online or in-person classes or how does that work? We mostly do in-person classes. We gave, we put Meta on a little hiatus while I was writing the book, The Five Invitations, and going out and talking about it. But it's kind of cranking up again. And so, um, you know, if they go to the website, metainstitute.org, eventually they'll see a list of events and other things that are coming on. We're just kind of, kind of re-engaging with it um, this year. So there'll be more on more programs. We're working on developing an online program for it as well. But, you know, we do, we're really oriented toward transformative work. And it's hard to do that online, honestly. And yeah, I, I, I agree. The, there's something about the face-to-face contact that I, I like a lot. Yeah. I agree. I agree. So tell me this. How can people find you and find this wonderful book that you wrote? Well, the easiest way is to go to the website, fiveinvitations.com, and there they'll find um, not only information about the book, but, you know, they'll find articles and videos and other kinds of supportive materials that are free for them to use. And they can download those those blog posts and those interviews of all kinds. And they can also find a series of events that I'm doing around the world. I just came back from South Africa teaching. I'm going to be in Costa Rica in a couple of weeks. I teach in Australia, South America, all around the United States and Europe. And so, do you need an assistant, like someone (laughs) to carry your bags? Yeah. (laughs) No, I kind of do it. I I, I carry my own bags. This keeps me humble. (laughs) Come it. (laughs) But if you want to book my airline reservations, that would be really a big help. Oh, hey, I'm. As long as I can book an extra ticket for me to come, I'm totally into that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so, uh, you know, and increasingly, we, we were initially focusing primarily on uh, clinicians, healthcare professionals. But now, you know, I, I have a lot of faith in the general public. I, I think do medicine too. and healthcare moves very slowly. It's a bit like walking through molasses, you know. So I'm, I'm really encouraging. I'm doing a lot more work with just ordinary folks, you know, people who are trying to figure out how to take care of their mothers and uh, how to stay sane while, you know, with their father's Alzheimer's. Uh-huh. I and, love um, that. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, they can find me at fiveinvitations.com. That's the best place to find me. And the book is called The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Has to Teach Us About Living Fully. And um, makes a great uh, Christmas gift. Absolutely, absolutely. I can't express my gratitude, um, A, for what you've done in the world, but also for taking the time out and coming on and really talking about this wonderful book that you've you've written and I look forward to diving into the the pages in between these lessons to discover how these lessons evolved in your life and 
I just really admire you. And I'm just glad that you're in my life and that I'm following you. And I'm hoping when this tour goes through San Francisco, the the Meta Institute will have a in-person training that I might could even take part of because I just believe in what you're doing. And I thank you for all and your staff and all those involved with the Meta Institute to to continue their efforts, especially I, I agree with you. I'm, I feel very empowered by the individual and what they can do, um, especially at the end of life for those we love as well as for ourselves. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And thanks for what you're doing. And, uh, you know, keep talking and keep listening. And, um, you know, uh, I think I um, hope the tour is a really big success, you know, and that, what oh, I mean by that is that, that you really get to have these kind of intimate exchanges with people as you travel around the country talking yeah, about the most you. important issue in our life. Yeah, the most important it issue. It is. It is. And I, and I feel very grateful um, to the people I've already met and, and very open to whatever the tour, tour evol- evolves into, to leaning into that and, and hoping to find my own life lessons along the way so thank you for your encouragement and frank thank you for what you do and i I can't wait till our paths cross again okay you're welcome take good care of yourself thank you thanks for joining us today and remember you're the designer